If any of you are looking for any last-minute gift ideas for me, I have one. I'd like Frank Shirley, my boss, right here tonight. I want him brought from his happy holiday slumber over there in Melody Lane with all the other rich people. And I want him brought right here with a big ribbon on his head. And I want to look him straight in the eye and I want to tell him what a cheap, lying, no good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, worm-headed sack of monkey shit he is! Hallelujah! Holy shit! Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is your host, James Kett. And now, here he is, the snow miser to my heat miser, Teal. <laughs> yeah, the snow is coming, and the snow came last week, and we didn't tape because I had no electricity. That's why you're snow miser. Cause yep, I am definitely snow miser and you definitely had the heat going on. I, I, I was, I was getting a little chilly here. It, it sounds like a joke, but what people don't understand is that you literally lost power for like five days, four days in December in Maine. And you were, it was like pretty chilly in that household. It was very chilly. It, it was extremely chilly. We were bundled up. We had a kerosene heater going. We, uh, yeah, it, it, it was, it was, it was a rough four days. I don't recommend it. Well, so this is for you, the listener, you know, I, and I think you've all enjoyed the De Palm episodes and we, we've given you three and I believe there's going to be a fourth at some point. We haven't taped it yet. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because I've discovered afterwards, I got so obsessed that then I wanted to see more movies of his just <laughs> right. to complete. And I've, and I've completed some and, uh, and some not so great. Okay. Well, I guess we'll, we won't get into that now because, but you just piqued my curiosity. Oh, yeah. so. Well, so we were going to last week, uh, you know, we were look, always looking for brand new movies and yeah. the new David Fincher movie Mank premiered on Netflix a couple weeks ago. Yes. And so, of course, I watched it right away, and then you got your power went out. So you- I think it came out on Netflix the day before my power went out. Yeah, and of course, you probably thought you were going to watch it the weekend, right? Yeah, yeah. I had well, I had planned I was, I was going to watch it that night. I had sat, I was sitting down to watch it when the power went out. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I watched it, and then I just had to wait for you. And so, we originally would have aired that between the second and yes. third De Palma episode, but now we're taping it now, and then this will come on eventually, as soon as I can get the time to edit it. Yeah. So, Mank, I saw it. Well, do you want to talk about that now? Or do we have any other like little? Uh, oh, I don't know. Holiday films? You've been watching yeah, any yeah, of those? That's there. You go. So we should start with that because it is the holidays. Yeah. Yeah, we're trying to make our way through some holiday films. Watched a couple with our youngest, uh, mm-hmm. the, the classics, you know. Yeah, Christmas Vacation. My wife always likes to watch that. Uh, Home Alone. My my youngest may have seen parts of it when he was very very little, uh-huh. but 
it was like, I haven't watched it since my oldest watched it for the first time a few years ago. And okay. I don't think he was really, an, he's, you know, every, every kid has a different sort of spirit. Right. And, and it wasn't, he didn't click with him. Well, I don't think he didn't not like it, but the youngest one, I guess he seemed to be a lot more like the character in Home Alone. Right. Um, and he, he's also around <laughs> the exact same age. And yep. so he really loved it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, my youngest loves it too. And so it made it more fun to watch uh, when you're watching it with a kid yeah. who is seeing it on the exact same level as the kid in the movie. Yes, and it, it's such a great fantasy for kids. It is. And you know what? I mean, it's it, obviously it's very uh, scripted in that yes. everything has to fall into place. But I have to say that for the high concept premise. Yeah. John Hughes' script is a master uh, piece of being able to tie in the loose ends of how could you even possibly lose track of a kid when you're going on a <laughs> – like, you know what I mean? That just seems like, well, no parent would do that. But yet yeah. he adds up all these little things, including something that either I completely forgot or never noticed until watching uh -huh. it this time, where – Kevin gets in a fight with in an argument with somebody. Uh, yeah, at, well, his cousin or something. Yeah, and the yeah. milk spills, and they're cleaning it up, and they throw away his ticket into the garbage. Oh, yes. Yep. And so that's why they had a perfect ticket count. Yes. You know, and then, of course, they're all getting ready, and there's two vans, so that's smart, because then you break yep. up the people. So Everybody you, thinks they're in the other van. Yeah. And then some neighborhood kid comes, and there's no other reason for the neighborhood kid to come and poke around other than to be mistaken right. for, <laughs> for uh, Kevin but, McAllister. But the other thing that's great about that script is that it somehow maintains momentum in the absence of plot. There's really no plot. Well, I mean, it's 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 really it's concept, right? It's like it's concept. They he gets left behind. There's going to be robbers, and then she has to get back to him. Right, but it's like it, the stuff with him in the house could have just been a series of events, but he manages to write it so that it, the events build, and part, I guess the robbers really create that tension and conflict. But yeah, and of course, you know, what kind of robbers go around interviewing the household <laughs> so as they can be. <laughs> Seen and identified later, you know. I don't know, but yeah, no. I mean, you can't really. Uh, the script does its best with it, you know, a bunch of uh, improbabilities. Oh, so we, so we watched those, and then of course I mentioned this on the show a few episodes ago. But I got to watch over the Thanksgiving holiday, the happiest season. Oh yeah, which was the uh, Kristen Stewart and Mackenzie yes. Davis rom com for the holidays. Yes, did you watch that? Yes. No, I watched another, well, not as good as this one, I think. Happiest Season is supposed to be good, right? It was great. I mean, you know, it's, okay. a, it's a whole, I mean, it was no more or less than the hokey concepts of any rom-com holiday movie, but it added the additional element of the lesbian romance and the hidden right. aspect of that and around the holidays, but then really a family of sisters that have all competed with each other and have all had to like hide who they are and keep oh, okay. secrets because the family, you know, the patriarch and the matriarch are kind of demanding and very kind of conservative okay. parents. Right. Um, so there's a lot to it and there's a lot, and there's a lot of laughs along the way and uh, you know, it gave me everything I was hoping for. Okay. Well, I will probably check it out. I'm hearing lots of good things about it but what did you saw me. a holiday movie right i saw a holiday movie okay <laughs> not as good as happiest season 
<laughs> no, not really. Not I, I don't think probably not quite as good. Um I saw Noel. Noel. I mean, it that stands for Christmas and but it, it does. What is it? I don't even think I know it. <laughs> or do I? Uh, I'm pretty sure it's on Disney Channel. Okay. Uh <laughs> it stars Anna Kendrick. Oh, <laughs> I saw that last year. <laughs> oh, you saw it last oh, it's year? it's terrible. <laughs> but yet you couldn't stop watching it. But somehow you can't stop watching. There's, oh, so, there's some bizarre charm to it. But yeah, it's kind of it's kind of terrible. It's kind of terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I saw, I saw it last year. <laughs> okay. I'm waiting for the sequel, right? There's got to be yeah, one. It, it, that be was one. a weird one, right? Yes. A really weird movie. Yeah. Well, here's a funny little uh, tie-in. A good chunk of it, there's like this sort of um outdoor mall yeah in arizona in arizona yeah that was up the street from where we used to live yeah yeah, yeah. it was actually uh, it was near it was near my wife's parents house at the time they don't live in in arizona anymore. i mean it's just hilarious that it's all about phoenix right yeah. like well you know because it's the location <laughs> that you know probably gave him the best tax break and <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what it was um, yeah so i, I mean I was, you know i i'm laughing yeah, that movie. It's like i'm like noel oh yeah that was that crap bag <laughs> film i watched last year <laughs> I don't. I don't really understand Anna, Anna Kendrick. She's made some interesting choices. Not all. That's good. what I'm getting at. I I love Anna Kendrick. I think she's great. I will watch her in just about every, anything. But Clearly. she makes some really weird choices. I think she makes movies about what she likes, right? I guess. And if the yeah. check's going to clear, <laughs> then and it's, if the, the bonus going to clear, I don't know. Um, yeah, but you know what? That's better. That's a movie that's better than the one that I sat in the living room while it was on. Uh oh. Last Christmas. What is that? Oh come on! You must have heard about it. It came out last Christmas, and it borrows the storyline a little bit from the song from Wham Last Christmas. Oh, George okay. Michael. Oh, I I know the song. It is it's one of my least favorite Christmas songs. And then it features the Khaleesi right in her, in her rom com debut. Oh, wow! This sounds amazing. Directed by uh, Fall Paul, Paul Feig, who's uh, <laughs> you know remember uh, he did that movie A Simple Favor. Yes. Right. Which which was kind of like a, maybe a takeoff on Lifetime movies a little bit. Yeah. Um, and those kind of films. That was Anna Kendrick's in that. She's in that too. Yes. Um, but the guy, the the love interest, he was also in Crazy Rich Asians. Uh, that actor, mm. he is in it, and he plays the love interest in Last Christmas. However, okay. The, this guy who keeps showing up, by the way, around her job, like he's just there when she needs right. him. Um, but he won't. But he doesn't give her a phone number because he doesn't have a phone. Well, it turns out it's because he's a ghost. Wait, that's what Last Christmas is about? Yeah, because the previous- You're joking me. No, because la- no, because Last Christmas, right? <laughs> he gave her his heart because she had heart surgery and he was hit by a bus. <laughs> that's the best. I knew this going in, by the way. What oh, now I kind of have to see <laughs> well, it. That's why we had to see it because I'm like, this oh, is like too good. I have to watch it. Yeah. No, my kids put on that song just to troll me. Oh, well, this whole movie's a troll. <laughs> okay. I, <laughs> oh, I mean, it's man. so great. She, she's, hooking up, she's hooking up with a ghost. This is fantastic. But it's not like truly, madly, deeply? No, 
No, no, no, no. And it was, and it is just is not done with any. Like, I mean, you know, we talk about directors and style, and we of course just yeah. did three episodes on a master of like style. And you know, one thing you're going to get with the Paul Fig, you're going to get no directorial style whatsoever. <laughs> There's going to be no style at all. Just put a camera there and film stuff. Yeah. As a matter of fact, take his name off it and don't tell somebody that he directed it. And you will have no idea who directed that movie. Well, those are exactly the kind of movies I've been talking about yeah, lately. I know. They, 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 you they would just, never know. <laughs> it could be anyone. It just throw a director in there. Like, yeah, they're basically seem to be made by producers or something. I don't know. But the, yeah, Paul Feig, I didn't see that Ghostbusters movie, but he sucks. I did see it. And, you know. It was whatever. It wasn't that bad. I saw it, I saw it in the theater, by the way. I took wow. the boys. Oh, the boys wanted to see it at oh, the time, the boys, you know, a few years ago. Okay. We sat there and there was yeah. a, a couple, a traveling couple. I live in Vermont. So, you know, you have people that will actually be traveling the trail. What's the big trail there? The Appalachian Trail, right? The Appalachian Trail, right. yeah. They travel through and these two were travelers and they had their dog with them and they looked and smelled like people who were traveling <laughs> the Appalachian <laughs> okay. Trail. And they sat in front of us because I guess they just couldn't wait for the Ghostbusters. Does reboot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's the, my biggest memory of the movie. Uh, wow. But the dog was really well behaved. A anyways, one thing is for certain. If you took his name off the credits, I don't know whether you'd know that David Fincher directed Mank, but you'd know that it was a director who had some style. <laughs> You know, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. David Fincher is a guy where, honestly, you take his name off the credit. I, I don't, I feel like he blends in in that, like, I don't feel there's a distinct style to a David Fincher movie. I would, yeah, I think that he sort of. Maybe that's why he does so many takes. He take he does so many takes to make sure that <laughs> that, it, that that you can't recognize it's a style. No, but I mean, part of the reason, yeah, I think that he sort of adapts his style to what the movie is. I think that's a really good point because yeah, that's where like when you watch a Kubrick movie, it's very unmistakable. It has yes. a it just it just has a feel that it could be nobody else but Kubrick. Exactly. It has those very specific types. Well, and because Kubrick has those little uh, ticks, like doing symmetrical shots and things. Yeah. And then it's just, yeah, there's a cam the way the camera moves. And of course, with De Palma, yeah. every single movie, as I've discovered since I watched 17 of his films in the past <laughs> month, and I'm not kidding, I've added them up. He will put all of his trademarks, he makes sure he puts them in his movies. Yes, all of them. All yeah. of them. And I don't think it's just because I think it's like he really wants people to know that this is his film. Yeah, there aren't there aren't really Fincher ticks in the same way. It's not very meticulousness, but I don't think you can pick that up as saying, "Oh, this is a very meticulous film put together." I think you can actually. Can you? I think you. I think you can. There, there is. Well, I remember reading about how in Gone Girl he was using motion control cameras. Okay. So every take would be exactly the same in terms of what the camera did. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can get right. And so he wants to be able to sh make sure that he wants the actors to be able to do exactly what he wants, even if it takes 100 takes. But he doesn't want the camera to do anything more than what he exactly set out to do. <laughs> Exactly. And the, and the actors have to fit into that frame and he's not going to follow them if they start to improvise. Yeah. And it's funny. Gone Girl is my least favorite David Fincher movie. Oh, far, far and away. My well, I haven't seen Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Oh, you didn't see that? 
No. Oh, that's really good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I've, I mean, I, I've seen the originals, but I never saw his, uh, never saw his version. I kind of forget about that. That's like one of those movies where I forget that he directed that, but. Uh, and another movie of his I've never seen. I've seen every one of his movies. Which one haven't you seen? Benjamin Button. Oh, I think we've talked about this. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, that's such a complicated movie because it was really good yeah. as a film. But then, see, this is what's so interesting. And I think this is where we're leading up to this discussion on Mank. For whatever reason, those who are so in love with David Fincher, which right. I am not one of. I'm, I'm definitely not one of. Yeah. It, it doesn't mean I don't like some of his movies. It just means I'm just not in love with him as a director. But there are people that just... They think that uh, Seven is one of the God's gifts to movies, right? And so when they talk about Fincher, and maybe it's a younger crowd, they talk about him with such, you know, revelry uh, that that something like Benjamin Button doesn't fit that mold very well. Oh, okay. Right. But it's technically crafted meticulously. And of course, it's interesting. Uh, But I, and I saw it, uh, I think the opening day it came out, but- I couldn't tell you anything more. I haven't seen it. I mean, just, I'd be be curious to watch it again, I guess. I guess, I guess for us to answer that question, you know what we'd have to do, right? We'd have to watch it? No, we'd have to go and watch all of his films in a row, like what we did with uh, De Palma. Like, maybe we should do that. uh, I recently watched Alien 3. That's going to be me, like uh, the casualties of war, where it's like, I know revisiting it, it's not worth revisiting. So I actually watched the director's cut. Okay. And it's still unbelievably awful yeah there's a couple of great scenes in it i don't even know if the word there's great, some great but. scenes there's some interesting stuff but it just oh man it drags it's uh it it doesn't make a lot of sense it, like you can tell that there's not really a script hmm. he was like a golden boy who had done all these great music videos and then yes. i think he got into a film where he thought he was going to have the same kind of freedom but the studio had other ideas Exactly. The studio had some real, well, and uh, I mean, there were fights about the script even before he came in. I think it was always kind of a mess and he ended up in an even worse place. Uh, yeah. The uh, stories from that set are uh, legendary. He was in bad shape. Hmm. Well, you know, who's in that movie who I guess, you know, Fincher must have remembered Charles Dance. Yes. Who yes, plays Charles William Dance Randolph is- Hearst in Mank? Yeah. Uh, it took me a minute to recognize him in Mank because I haven't seen him for a while, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, he was in you know, the Game of Thrones there. That's true. Okay. So I want to set the stage for, for Mank. This is what, and again, I, here's the thing is I know you've seen it. I yes. don't know anything about your thoughts and you may know only a few of the thoughts of mine, but we haven't discussed it. We haven't discussed it at all. So, so I want to set the stage though. Is that there's, because I know you say, you you say anyway that you don't read up on these things, but there's been a lot of, I don't want to say the word controversy. I try not to read up too much before I see a film. I, I catch some stuff, but after I see it, I'll, I'll, I'll read some stuff. And of course I watched it, uh, the first two, I, I watched a chunk on Friday and then on the Saturday. So I, I did watch it within a um, quick period of time before I read a lot about it. But it seems to me that this is a film 
which was highly anticipated. There was probably a lot of expectations. I think Netflix is sort of like it's this year's Irishman. Right. Or just now people are expecting, oh, it's December. Netflix, what are you going to give me that's going to be great? Yeah, it's, it's the December Netflix. But I, I mean, they are. They're trying for awards and stuff. So so it's funny. It's They've got their own sort of award season, which, of course, we haven't had a ton of movies to really even talk about. Right. And so that that's this is one of the bigger movies of the year in uh, terms of prestige and coming from an A-list director and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I don't know what people were expecting with a Fincher movie, but I feel like people were somehow looking for some like inside look on the making of Citizen Kane. Well, you know, I don't blame them. That was my impression, knowing almost nothing about the movie. (sighs) But here's the thing. I wasn't disappointed by that, but I definitely had that impression going in that there was going to be more Orson Welles. But didn't you ever see... The HBO movie from either the early 2000s or late 90s, RKO, what? Oh, yes. It was all about that part. It was the Orson Welles right. side of making Citizen Kane. And Mank was a character yes. in it. And what so was you, that called? Well, it was called RKO number something. RKO 281. Yeah. And Liev Schreiber. Yeah, Liev Schreiber. Yeah. He played... Orson Welles. He played Orson Welles. Yeah, and it was a good performance. And James Cromwell played William Randolph Hearst. Okay. Melanie Griffith played Marion Davies. That's pretty good casting, actually. John Malkovich played Herman Mankiewicz. Uh, oh, it was not directed by Ridley Scott. I think he no, originally was going to direct it, it, but he produced, he produced it. He's the executive producer. So he and John Logan wrote it. Yeah. So it was going to be a movie. And then I think what the studios were like, I don't know. And Ridley Scott then dropped out of directing it. And it then became an HBO film. And guess what? It feels like a really good HBO movie. Yes, it does. Which means it didn't feel like it was good enough to be in the theaters. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it didn't. So having seen that, I don't think I was needing to see another film about hey, let's show you how we were setting up this shot of... I I didn't need to see that. It's just that's kind of what I thought going in is that that it was going to be more backlot stuff. So I think that's what has set a lot of critics of the movie off on that. It didn't give them what they decided that they thought it had to be. Yeah, it it wasn't the movie they wanted. They wanted a Fincher movie about Citizen Kane. And I think they also wanted a movie that had more direct homage to Citizen Kane. Yeah, which is, again, maybe these are critics who don't necessarily even know that much about Citizen Kane and know much about old movies. And (laughs) any of the things that Fincher was trying to do with this film, I think may have been completely lost on a non-film educated world of people. I think that's absolutely true. And I actually think that's a flaw with the film. Well, I also think that, see, with Netflix, right, that's accessible to everybody who has Netflix. Right. And... If you think about, uh, this is how I'm looking at Mank. Imagine, if you will, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, Mank would have come out at the end of the year and it would have played at a couple of art theaters. Yeah. Well, or or, or big theaters in big cities. Well, yes. But like like New York and LA, but when it would come to, say, Massachusetts, where I lived, it would have played in Cambridge and Boston. And if it was successful and well-received there, it might have got like a one or two week release in the big theaters because it was maybe going to get Oscar nominations. But it is not something that was going to have 60, $70 million weekend potential. 
no way. Yeah. No, not especially not in black and white. So my wife was super excited to watch this again because she saw like the trailer and the black and white right. and it looked cool. She dropped out half like after the first night. Interesting. Because it just wasn't a story she was interested in. You know, I've been thinking about it. it, it the script is interesting because it doesn't really. It, this, it, it doesn't have a lot of plot. And so the story is kind of, uh, it, it's not a tight kind of driven narrative. It meanders a little bit and takes on the form of memory at times. I also think a lot of people find that in reality, you're supposed to follow this character, right? Through past yeah. and present Herman Mankiewicz, that it's not that his performance isn't good, but most people are like, well, it's just not a character that I'm like, I find very likable or very interested yeah. in. And so it becomes a tricky type of movie because it doesn't fit into normal conventions. And yet it may be being watched by a lot of people who like to have normal conventions followed. Right. But yeah, it doesn't like there's no love story. There's no villain. Well, there are some villains, I would I would argue. No, there's plenty of villains, but it doesn't play out the way it would in a in a dramatic film that's not based on reality. Yeah. I mean, I don't, the word uneven is a tricky word, but I found that myself viewing the experience was I wasn't like there's like two sides of a film there's the side of like oh man this is a good movie yeah and then there's the other side of like wow i'm really taking an experience that there's a point where you realize oh i'm going to try to get as much as i can out of this movie because this is a film that's not going to truly be appreciated until maybe the second or third watch and i gotta say i watched <laughs> i watched the first 10 or 15 minutes one night as i was getting ready to go to bed and i was like this is terrible I'm not going to watch this movie. And so then <laughs> the next night I was like, okay, I'm starting over at the beginning. Yeah. You do that where I won't, I'll just, I'll just soldier through at whatever I, wherever I last pause the film. Normally I would do that, but I decided to just give it a full chance and right. give it a full view. And that like, I was just like, okay, I, I had this bad initial impression. And I think uh, some of the things you said are, are why I had that impression is like I was not initially engaged with the character, really that interested in the character. And this isn't a performance thing, but Gary Oldman is way too old for this role. Here's one thing, and this is about age. We we already know going in, if you if you do the research, you could be like, oh, well, Gary Oldman is older than Herman Mankiewicz was even when he died. Yes, like 20 years older. However- and this is why I think it works. Well, A, it's just a movie, right? So this is this is the part, this is the layer that I, w I think we're going to get into that I really enjoyed about the film is that not only is it a film about kind of the filmmaking process before it gets to production, yeah, but it also is the process of like any writer, and in this case is movies, how do they take their own experiences, the people they know, yeah. and weave it into fiction. Yeah. And then the further level of this is like many years later, a very fictionalized film that is set, is made in 2020, but it almost is envisioning, well, what if the story, give or take a few licenses with the fact that yeah. we can t use content that we couldn't be able to do in the 40s, but what if we reimagined it as if it was a Hollywood movie about this subject matter made in maybe like the very cynical early 50s as if it was like directed and shot by people in the Columbia Noir studios. <laughs> right. I'm going to present to you an evidence, okay? Yes. I think you're going you're gonna to be with me in a second because this is what always um, amazed me. 
But it just tells you how it was a different time back then. Oh, that's what I was going to say about Gary Oldman. I didn't think he was too old for the present day Mank. Yeah. But in some of the flashbacks, immediately after this, I watched Citizen Kane. And they do age makeup. And it's very effective at letting you know what time in his life it is. Yes. It wasn't as easy for me to track the timeline in Mank. Except for the fact that they said f- they would do those awesome little flashback things. I loved those things, but I couldn't I, I, I couldn't remember the year of the one before. And so I couldn't, you know. Okay, here's my evidence. Yeah. Okay. Actor William Holden. Yes. Right? One of your favorite movies. What is it? With William Holden? Yeah. Network. Network, yes. Network came out in 76, correct? Yeah. In 1976, William Holden, who looked like he was pushing late 70s in that film, was 58 years old. That's what alcohol and cigarettes do to you back in those <laughs> well, days. Those I, I know people, and, and that was their defense of casting Gary Oldman, is that people, you know, alcoholics look older. My only issue was in the flashbacks, really. I wanted, you know, why didn't they use a little bit of that Irishman on him? Like I said, I don't think he really wanted to do that. And and so, like I said, it was only, you know, like it was what a 12-year period they were focusing in the film. I guess that's true. Yeah. So it's not, but the age threw me off a little bit the same way it did in The Irishman. Yeah. The age had, I mean, really had no effect on me whatsoever. Okay. Well, you're lucky. It just, I'm lucky. Well, yeah, because it it was, it it didn't ruin the movie for me, but it just kind of bugged me from time to time. You know, when they're doing flashbacks and his memory, people kind of are, you know, they look the way they look. It's hard to. Oh, and I, you know, I do like the fact. I mean, it's not that like anybody really knows today what her, if you didn't look him up, what Herman Mankiewicz looked like. No, I don't, I don't really care about that. It just like, at times I was like, wow, he really looks too old for his wife. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's where, I, that's where <laughs> I fall. But I think it also falls into these conventions the way they used to make these movies in Hollywood. Yeah, I think, okay, that's a good point. I have much less of a issue with a movie like Mank trying to be sort of like a biopic when it making no bones about the fact that it's doing it in a whole very well stylized old yes. Hollywood way because it has this thing where I, I, I find it tickling because it feels like the conventions of these these noir films, which I right. been, there's the character Shelley Medcalf, which was the guy who was in like an editor, wanted to be a filmmaker and has to edit those. Mic- That's one of the great, great side stories. Yeah. Well, it's a fake. It's a fake character. Right. It's not a real okay. guy, but it, yet it's used as, again, part of the story. And that's where when you start to think about it, right, the whole movie is about is made up as Citizen Kane was from the imagination of Herman Mankiewicz, which people take it on record that like, oh, Citizen Kane is this, uh, you know, it's not a biopic of William Randolph Hearst. <laughs> it's a reimagining of some of the stuff from a guy who was a writer in Hollywood who happened to kind of run in those circles from time to time. Yeah. And this movie is the same kind of thing. It's it's a reimagining of Mankiewicz, I think. Yeah. But it also does... It's very aware that it's a movie. It lets you know it's a movie on a regular That's basis. I love that. I love that. No, I, I, I'm saying this is a good thing, but it also like the flashbacks I felt like were through his memory. Yeah, which obviously is very clouded by alcohol. It's clouded by al- alcohol, but also when you remember something, you always have the wittiest comeback. <laughs> yes. and no, But also think about this, right? When you remember things back from you, I, I have a hard time remembering, like, if I think about things that happened in my life, I have a hard time yeah. remembering that I didn't look like I look now. 
Well, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, so I'm willing to I'm willing to let that go. Um, mostly because uh, I enjoyed sort of the you know, there's a moment in the movie where he says, "But I am writing an opera," <laughs> and it, it, when he's talking about Citizen Kane being an opera, and I thought. There's something there, like Mank is not an opera, but it's not a realistic film either. It's over the top in a lot of ways, and some of which are quite funny. I mean, I I, th- I think this is Fincher's funniest film. Yeah, I, I would I would get I would I would get with that. I mean, there's again, it's not like a lot of laughs, but there's some lighthearted things. I got a chuckle here and there. You know, some of the dialogue is really fun and witty. I did have an issue. There's a couple issues with the script, but. Stop. Enough with you and your script, because I think that's like, I mean, look, we already know that this isn't sort of a conventional script. You can save that for the end. Let's talk about some of these things that you just said. No, one last thing on the script, though. Script. The script was written by Fincher's dad. Yes, Jack Fincher, who was not a uh, screenwriter, by the way. He was a a different type of writer. Exactly. Some of the scenes in this movie felt a little fan fictiony to me. Well, again, none of this is, you know, this is the problem where uh when when a film like Gary Oldman won best actor uh playing yeah. he played uh Winston Churchill. Yes. The way it was approached, even though it was it was kind of cool and stylized, it it presented itself a little bit more like a like like as if it was a slice of something that really happened. Right. And then when you find out what's made up, you feel betrayed. Yeah, and that's not the case with Mac. And with this is that, you know, it's telling this uh, story. And if you were to walk away thinking, oh, oh, this happened. Well, I think you're already in the wrong, you know, you're in the wrong arena there, especially where just the stylistic choices, the black and white cinematography, it isn't just black and white cinematography with really good images right it's stylized it's dark in places light in others overly dark and it's making a statement um it's more of an art film and it is it's used to talk to to really illustrate mood and effect in a in a way that movies today are not i would totally agree with that and i think again the expectations i was expecting a little bit and i'm glad it didn't happen Uh, let me just preface this i'm glad it didn't happen but i was expecting more camera movement because of orson welles uh but what i noticed was that the framing is not just the framing but the way lines work in the composition like the edge of a door or a fence or the way the lines are 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 set up it reminded me of Orson Welles he obviously wasn't shooting it in 137 he was shooting it right. in like 239 however he still utilized film techniques for composition that are yes. reminiscent uh, and it really brings a dimensionality there's a depth to the images there's uh, there's so many shots in citizen kane where there's like somebody in the foreground somebody in the mid and somebody in the background and or there's people around the edges of the frame yep he's using it in a very similar way but it doesn't feel like he's trying to do an orson welles impression no and as a matter of fact there are there are lots of shots in the film that uh, they're not exact takeoffs no they're not and i but i'm glad they're not because i was it, it would have been really corny to have lots of those Orson Welles type shots. But that's the kind of crap that you see in movies today when they have to pay homage or do an Easter egg or yeah. something. This, I feel, was very smart 
uh, about it. You have to be somebody who really didn't say, oh, yeah, I watched Citizen Kane once in my life. Right. You have to be somebody that really says, no, Citizen Kane is a good movie and has maybe watched it several times. And when you see these things, you realize that he's not setting up the exact same characters and saying, oh, this is why that's in the movie kind of thing. Right. No, there aren't. It's not like filled with Easter eggs. I mean, it is, but they're not obvious. It's not a. But well, like Mank's character, he was a he was a, a studio writer, and he participated on many projects that he never got credit for because that was yeah. the way the studio system worked. They all got into this room, but when you see them all together, kind of as their writers powwow, yeah. you can't help but see how he brought that dynamic into the script with Citizen Kane in the scenes mm-hmm. when Kane has his early days in the paper. And he's got his buddies. Yep, absolutely. I saw this relationship in the movie with Louis B. Mayer. Yes. And I thought that's a very interesting performance by Arliss Howard. Oh, I thought it was a great performance. Really, I saw Arliss Howard's name in the credits at the beginning. And then so like halfway through the movie, I was like, oh, wait, that's Arliss Howard. He's really fantastic. But what was cool is the way he looked, the way he was dressed and his glasses. I yes. said, wow, you know, it's funny. He looks a lot like... Um, in Citizen Kane, he looks like Kane's buddy, the accountant. Yes, the guy. Yeah, the guy who takes care of him. Yep, he's got the same glasses, the same hair. Yeah, no, I thought the same thing uh, watching Kane. And there's a couple other characters in Kane that look very similar to that too. But what's great about that part is that you, as the viewer, you make that association, right? And you say, wow, I wonder if like that's how, you know, do you think that Manx kind of borrowed a little bit of his relationship with Louis B. Mayer and brought in a character? Obviously, it's not like Louis B. Mayer in the King right. story, but a character that's based somewhat just on a reminder. And then rather than you having to like just on your own, later someone says, I recognize that in this quick, you, did you write that character? Like, is that supposed <laughs> to be Louis B. Mayer? And I thought that's like really good is that people who know Mank and have read his script are seeing yeah. or guessing or trying to guess what it is in this that's from real life. Exactly. And so those are the things I thought became a fascinating movie. I mean, I understand why people are like, why should I care about And and I saw a few reviews that were just like, I don't really care by the end of the movie. Like, why am I supposed to care about this? For me, there's a story here with this character that interested me. And uh, one part of it was, you know, his art, his artistic ambitions are different than sort of his professional ambitions. You get a sense that he really cares about the writing deeply, but isn't willing to, like, work the system very well for his own advantage. And so that's going on. I think there's a conflict there between art and commerce, but there's also this political under story going under the whole thing that's well not not subtle i mean it's actively about the political situation at times but i think that's a similar conflict to this art versus commerce thing where you have sort of you know fascism versus socialism and you've got like the writers guild trying to protect uh artistic integrity from the capitalists like hearst who are like buying everything up to block the movie from happening and I mean, and it's, I don't think it's very, it's, it's so subtle, but I think it works very well is that I wasn't expecting this when I 
sat down to watch the movie, but Fincher makes a very interesting commentary on the events that have happened in the past several years. Absolutely. It's, it definitely feels like there is some, but it, I think there is some comp- contemporary political commentary going on, but I think all, and this was one of my first takeaways was, wow, things have not really changed that much. Well, I think that's another point he makes. Um, and then also, I mean, again, I look at this completely it is as a as a as a fictional story based on you know yeah, it's a fantasy it's, it's inspired a, by but in the fantasy i see this script as you know this gary oldman he knows that he's he's on the way out yeah and i think that it's also pretty clear that he was chosen to write the script uh, by Orson Welles because he had connections to the people yes. of the story. And I think Gary Oldman, his character is that I have nothing else to lose. And it's his final F.U. revenge yes. on all of these people. And so that's what he sets out to write. And he, and he writes you know, his final masterpiece, if you will, because he never wrote uh, or I, he maybe wrote some stuff, but he didn't have any big uh, solo screen credit or anything on a film after this. No, um, he didn't. So yeah. Kind of finished him up, but he was washed up. He was washed up and he was ready for it. <laughs> you know, like you said, he has nothing to lose. He's like, if this ends my career or whatever. Well, they put him out to pasture. They put him on a ranch <laughs> in Victoria, <laughs> Victorville, California to write the script and then have keepers and minders to make sure that that he didn't go on benders and then there's even a funny part with like those alcohol bottles yes but the way that they shot those things and the music cues and everything and the sound design it's like right out of those late 40s early yes. 50s films um and i think that there's just a lot of people that don't have the subtext of seeing films like i thought the film where it became really good for me and a lot of it was the political and just even in the the shades of the darkness and the cinematography, it really started to feel cynical, like the sweet smell of success. Yes. Oh, absolutely. The organ grinder's monkey. Oh, that scene with, uh, with the scene when Hearst explains that to him. But there's a, but there's a part like an hour earlier in the movie where Mank says to somebody, "Do you know the story of the organ grinder's monkey?" But a much different when Dance tells it. It's much different when Dance tells it, but I feel like that's kind of the central metaphor for the entire movie is who's the organ grinder and who's the monkey. And, you know, they, they refer to Mank as a court jester frequently. He's there kind of as an amusement to people. Well, that's why that scene, right? He comes in yeah. while, while Hearst is holding court and everybody's dressed like a clown and he yes. comes in completely <laughs> drunk. That is the scene, by the way, that he made them do 200 takes, David Fincher, of certain parts and that Amanda Seyfried didn't even have any lines and had to be there for 200 takes. Wait, you're kidding me. 200 takes? Yeah, and there was a scene because he had to play drunk, right? Where right. Oldman said to Fincher... I've done this for a hundred takes. Don't we have enough? And then Fincher looked at him and said, I know it's 101 reset. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. One of the things that I thought was a revelation in the movie. And again, again, it's a fictionalized version of whoever Marion Davis actually was because nobody really knows. Right. Yeah. Nobody really knows. Yeah. I thought Amanda Seyfried was amazing. Yeah, and it's interesting. She, I mean, I've seen her in a million things, but she never really struck me the way she did in this movie. David Fincher, he he was she sent to her like a, a letter and said, I'd like you to consider being in this film and read the script. I, she was just so perfect. She was so perfect, yeah. And and she 
And that was an interesting thing, too, because, again, we don't really know. But the way she viewed her relationship with Hearst was really interesting. Yeah. Again, in this fictionalized version. In this fictionalized version. Yes. In, the, in this fiction. But that scene where it, 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 there's a couple of great scenes with her and Mank. Like the first one when she's being burned at the stake. Yes. And then they have this little like picnic scene yep. later in the movie. And th- those are some of my favorite scenes in the movie, actually. She's fantastic. To me, when we look at like, you know, the award season, when you have like best supporting, she's got to be there, <laughs> in my opinion. How much did you like this movie? Will it go in your top 10? Well, you know, this year is going to be funny. I don't know if I can really do a top 10 this year. I because feel the same way. There's just not enough films out there and they're kind of moving the season a little bit. Anyway, so I mean, it's just one of those years where I can talk. I think maybe we'll have a wrap-up show in a few months where we say, "What were the what were the movies that what we really actually liked? we remember?" Yeah, I I think this is a film where I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie of the year, but I think it's really in many ways one of the best. I appreciated it because yeah, you know me when it comes to making a historical film. Oh yeah, no, you're you're a stickler, and I've always felt that if you were going to make something, especially about Hollywood in the '40s. Rather than shooting it to look like a film today that was supposed to be set and it has that very fake uh, costumes and stuff. Yeah, that high gloss period costuming. Yeah, where I start to think, did that really, is that the way things looked <laughs> right. like in the 30s? Instead, I want to be reminded of the of the magical world, the way that films looked. Yes. Evoked. And of course, it's shot with an, the red monstrochrome 8K camera. So it was actually shot in camera, native black and white. Right, it right, wasn't right. converted, which was cool because they could see right there what things were looking like. Everything that, yeah. And so, you know, it's not shot on film, though I would love to see this thing projected someday. But they added film grain. The, yeah, they did and stuff. And I'm good. I don't have like a, a super gigantic screen uh, to see how. I think this thing needs to be shown really big, which would be cool. I had really mixed feelings about the grain. Sometimes I felt like it really was great. And in some scenes, it it like blurred things in a weird way that I didn't. It, it, generally, I liked the cinematography, but there, and I, and although this isn't the cinematography, the cigarette burns bugged me. That The cigarette burns might have been a little bit much, but, 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 but. Uh, on that. What I did love, this is another element that I give him kudos for because it's a big thing that bothers me is that you're setting movies in the past, but they don't, it's not that they don't look like they were in the past. They don't sound it. No. And the sound design in this movie is incredible. So they did it on a monoroll sound mix, which is perfectly, that's like the way films used to well, and you know how they recorded the music too, right? With old mics. With old mics in a big empty room. Can we talk about this amazing score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross? I was just astounded by this score throughout the movie. I would, I was just, what is going on? How is this such a good score? That's that score, the sound mixing, which they also added. By the way, I guess there's a 5.1 mix where they they added a, a little bit for the rear speakers to give that little echo that if you were watching it. In a big theater, it had that weird sort of echoey sound. So I appreciate that too. And the part of the cigarette burns that I did like was they made that little warble noise on the soundtrack. I kind of liked the way they were timed too. It was like actually at a real change. Well, they would do it at the 11 minute real change, which would have been the way it would have been back then. 
Is there one at the 11? Yeah, it was every 11 minutes because it's normally like later they would they would build the the reels with 22 minutes because the reels were bigger and they could hold it. But before it used to be 11 minute reels. 11 minute reels. Okay. These like little levels of detail. And well, and this movie is so detailed and so meticulous. I mean, we haven't even gotten into like costumes and set design yet, but. The thing is, this is a really good movie, but it's kind of uneven. It's it's not. You had said that word earlier, and I feel like there's something that's not quite. You want to enjoy it more. Yeah. And then you find ways that you are enjoying it. And that's why I think when when we get to taking a second look at this film, I just, you know, it's like all the great movies. you got to see it more than once. And I have only seen it once. I've only seen it once. And I did, like I said, I, I immediately watched Citizen Kane after this. And I've seen Citizen Kane, you know, a bunch of times, but I hadn't seen it in a while. What did it do for you when you watched it? The first thing was that I realized that so many of the times I watched Citizen Kane early on in my life, yeah, I was focused on the filmmaking. And because that was the big revolutionary thing about the uh, not revolutionary, but that was that was what it did is it pushed cinema, it pushed the medium in really interesting ways with the camera movement. Yeah, but the screenplay is one of the best screenplays of all time. I hadn't really paid as close attention to the screenplay in past viewings. I mean, of course, I, I I understood how good a script it was. But in this viewing, I went into it with a little bit more attention to the script. Right. And naturally, because you just watched a movie about the writing of it. <laughs> exactly. And so I specifically wanted to, like, really listen to the dialogue and really think about, you know, how he was building these scenes and stuff like that. I just wanted to th- pay a little more attention to the script. And... It's a great script. But here was the other thing that surprised me is I start watching Citizen Kane and suddenly like I'm an hour into it. Right. It flies by and I'm just sitting there going, oh, wow, this is a really good movie. This like it, it holds up. It it lives up to its reputation. It's really fun. It's entertaining. It's involving. It's visually pleasing. The dialogue is great. It's it, it, it's a really good movie. And I was just, uh, you know, I mean, I had that moment. I was like, this is so much better than Mank. It, it, not that I can even compare them. Which is unfair, I would say. Totally unfair. But Citizen Kane is a really solid movie i know that sounds stupid to <laughs> wow, say wow here it is folks teal's <laughs> claiming that citizen kane is actually a good film is actually a good film well i think you know the, uh, with a movie like this its reputation is so big and i know people who have seen it and been disappointed because because of its reputation and the first time they see it they're like eh, i don't know it was okay you know one of the greatest uh commentaries i've ever listened to on uh-huh. any kind of film track. I own the DVD of Citizen King. Got it oh. many years ago. And on that, I think there's a couple of commentaries you could listen to. Yeah. But Roger Ebert does a commentary. Oh. It is one of the most it, it it will open your eyes to things that you just didn't think about before when you watch that movie. Um okay. and he talks he he breaks it down every shot. Right. And what I really liked about after you know many times watching it and and actually hearing it with the commentary what i loved about citizen kane and when we talk about the deep focused photography yeah. is back in the 1941 
Orson Welles was in a way, because again, he came from the theater. He yeah. was trying to figure out how to bring three-dimensionality yes. to a movie in a nice square box. It was almost, to me, watching Citizen Kane is like watching uh, through a Viewmaster, but without the Viewmaster. Yeah, it's, it, it's, yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, is it feels like it has multi-planes. Yeah. Multiple planes of action. Another thing that really, uh, and we're going to be talking about this more in a future episode, <laughs> not about Kane, but the blocking. And I've been watching, uh, I'll just throw this out here. We're getting to it on a future show, but I've been watching some uh, movies by Joseph Lossi. Yeah. All right. I want to stop there because this will be a preview. We we actually had a, a, a listener yeah. who wrote to us and said, have you ever seen Joseph Lossi's The Servant and Mr. Klein? I yeah. just watched these two movies and they blew me away and it would be great if you could talk about them on your show and we will always take up a challenge yep. and we are in the process right now of rabbit holing uh, Joseph Lossie yes. and some of those films are on Criterion. You could check them out um, because he did some partnerships with Harold Pinter or Pinter, right? I don't know. Is it Pinter? Pinter. I think it's Pinter. And... Uh, they're featuring Harold Pinter, so yeah. there's several movies on of his in Criterion, but he did like three collaborations with Joseph Lossi. Yeah, Accident also. Accident. Uh, oh, there's just, I mean, there's, we shouldn't get into too many details, but I think what you're going to say is that there's something about when you're watching a director who I didn't have any familiarity with. Yes. Is that you actually start to see what his techniques are, and now take it away, Teal, with the- The blocking is incredible. The the way I think Wells and Losey move people in physical space and how they line them up and where those planes are and how they change position during a scene in a way that like tells the story through body language and framing. And uh, yeah, every glossy movie I watch, I just sit there going, oh my God, his blocking is incredible. I do believe the French call that mise-en-scene. No, it's not mise-en-scene. It is. It's everything in the frame. That's what mise-en-scene means. And that's what the idea is that the directors who figure out what's going to happen in this frame, and that's everything from like the way that the, the, the right. angle, but it's the way, how do people move in the frame? And I think a lot of directors just set up a camera and say, two, three, five, that's cool. And they don't even know where the, the actors should be. Whereas, you know, Wells will have somebody crossing the frame and then somebody else comes in and, and it keeps this really dynamic frame. And yeah, Lossie does the same thing where it's just like the way the actors move within the frame is really dynamic and interesting and i i, I think a lot of, you're, you're right a lot of directors don't pay enough attention to it especially and i the reason i noticed it so much with lossy is uh that some of these are long dialogue scenes because pinter is a, is a dialogue writer yeah and, I, and wells does that and i think mank actually has some pretty good blocking too yeah well i think this is a whole movie where if you shut the sound off right and just watch the images. I don't know what story you'd get, but it would be pretty compelling. It would be pretty compelling. Yeah. I, I feel like this is an incomplete film without Citizen Kane. I don't know that you can watch this movie not having seen Citizen Kane and get as much out of it. Well, I mean, certainly there's a shot. There's one of my favorite shots in the film. Um, and again, it delighted me. It's either like you, I, I like you. It wasn't that I didn't like the first fifteen minutes, but it was. I want to say it's slow going, but I just it wasn't kicking it in for it, it me. It didn't kick it in for me. Yeah, didn't. And grab then me. I found that my second half viewing the next night, I was really getting engaged when it was really getting into the Upton Sinclair story. Yes, and then there's a scene where 
Mank and Marion Davies are walking the external grounds at night of Hearst Castle. And it was actually shot day for night. They used oh, day for night black and white techniques to make it very stark and harsh right. and almost artificial. Yeah. And in the background, you see where Hearst, Hearst Castle is actually called San Simeon. Yeah. Which I've been to. It's amazing. You should go to if you ever go to Northern California. And I don't think they actually ever shot at San Simeon, by the way. Yeah. But this backdrop, probably digitally created, whatever, has these like – it's at night and you see these birds flying by. And it's yes. a direct call – back to a scene in Citizen Kane where they're, I think it's during the newsreel or at the beginning where they like yep. zooming up to the castle and yep. it's very eerie. And it's these like little touches where I guess it's an Easter egg, but it fits in this movie. But it's also, if you're really a fan of Citizen Kane. Yes. And there's other things like it too. Like there's a shot that's very famous at the beginning when they see the newsreel and you have the person who's going to give the assignment stand up and you only see him in silhouette. Yes. And he's kind of. It's so great. And then he comes forward. Oh, yes. And they, they make a thing. He, he does a homage to that in Mank. His body is lit, but his head is still in, in, in uh, silhouette. Boy, Greg Toland. Yeah, he did some really great stuff. Not even just stuff that he did with uh, Orson Welles. He did a lot of other things and some great color cinematography, too. He was uh, a cinematographer on eight Best Picture nominees. That's a lot. Yes. Yeah, the one that pops out to me out of his filmography is, you know, one of a movie that I've just always been blown away by the cinematography of is uh, Grapes of Wrath. Yes, by the way, that was one of the influences Fincher had uh, when he and his cinematographer, who's Eric uh, Merzerschmidt, who yes. was gaffer on a lot of things. And then he kind of graduated to cinematographer and shot most of the episodes, if not all of Mindhunter. Right, right, right. But yes, they looked at that film as one of the inspirations for Mank. Okay. Yeah. Cause it has, well, it has that feel, but it, it you know, as a John Ford feels too. It, and I, I think that's, that's, I mean, just seeing like his work as a cinematographer with two really distinctive directors. So anyway, Mank is good. So you liked Mank, though you have issues with it, but I think it's something that you might revisit at some point. I might revisit it at some point. I'm not going to be going and recommending it highly to everyone. Well, so that's that's, that's ultimately it's not it's not a crowd movie. It's yeah. It's a it's a niche film with some beautiful element. I mean, from a technical standpoint, there's a lot to enjoy. Yes, there are some great performances. I mean, it's funny it, as good as. Gary Oldman, I think, is as Herman Mank. That's, you know, the character, I don't want to say he's not given enough to do, but. Well, he's kind of, I mean, he's an observer, right? Like yeah. his, his big action is that he writes the script and, and it's boring to see somebody write a script. Yeah. And you've said that actually, you said before uh, uh, on this program is that, uh, you know, movies about the writers and the writer's process is kind of like some of the most boring stuff. Yeah, and and that actually is the most to me. It's the least interesting stuff in the movie is him in bed with a pen. For me, it's like I liked Marion Day, the Amanda Seyfried character. Yes, I enjoyed Arliss Howard. I actually thought that Tom Burke, who plays Orson Welles, did a really good Orson Welles, and the guy who plays Thalberg. That's uh, Ben Kingsley's son, Ferdinand Kingsley. Okay. Yeah. I, I just thought that was an interesting character and I, I felt like he just really nailed the character. Well, do you know who plays, you, you don't see him more than a second, but do you know who plays Upton Sinclair? No. Bill Nye, the science guy. 
What? Really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And you know, the the, the ranch that uh, Mank goes to, Yeah, they filmed it on Kemper Campbell Ranch, which is where Herman Mankiewicz actually wrote Citizen Kane. Oh, wow. So okay. when you're looking at those landscapes and everything around there, yeah. the reason why they, they actually chose it was because it hasn't really changed much since then. Wow. That. Oh, that's very cool. So there's lots of things to How much to did they spend in. on this movie? I don't know the answer to that. I mean, it's, it just looks... To, to recreate this movie, when they have driving scenes, they kind of give it that rear projection look. Yes, they do. I love it. But it's still digitally done, and I felt like they should have done real rear projection. But Well, I know, and I had this moment where I was like, I wish there were matte paintings in this movie and not digital. Yeah, I mean, so that would have been taking a bridge <laughs> to it, which is why I, appreci- I appreciate that he took it to the levels he did. Yeah. And I felt like it was appropriate enough to say, you know, because it's not just like, oh, I want to make it look like Citizen Kane. Well, but it was more like I'd like it to sort of feel like it was something that they dug up out of the archives. I mean, I think that the script would have had to felt a little differently, even though I do think that some of the dialogue did have some great moments. I mean, the thing is, I was thinking about in a lonely place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This movie reminded me that. And again, I watched all those Columbia noirs. There's a scene that it's kind of hokey, but I love it. It's what it told me that they were really going for that spirit. When when Mankiewicz is trying to talk his friend out of suicide. Oh, right. Yes. And he gives him the bullets. Yes. And then they drives over to the girlfriend's house. And he's like, here. And he gives him the bullet. He goes, but he had a whole box. And then he goes zooming back and you just hear the gunfire. You see it. You see like a flash in the window. That's to me was like the magic of this movie is yeah. in those moments. Where it really becomes its own thing. And I think that's important is that this movie, as we've said before, it's kind of a fantasy. It's kind of its own take on things. Yeah. It's not supposed to be a biopic necessarily, even though it falls into some of those traps and we didn't get into the whole thing where people he's trying to say that you know orson wells wasn't quite the auteur like that's not what this movie really it's like that's what you're trying to get out of this movie what? I, I know people are all upset i mean you know people are upset there's been a lot of debate and and people feeling like it's in camps like trying to rewrite history and saying that you know giving mank his due it's like you guys this is just a movie and I don't even know how accurate it is. <laughs> but also, didn't Mank win an Oscar for this? Well, it was shared with Orson it was Welles. Shared, it was Orson Welles, which that's why I love the ending. Where yes, the, that that line is so great. I accept this in, in the spirit in which it was written. Yes. <laughs> and also, you know, the guy who's announced the announcer of the award or the handoff the award was uh, yeah. was Ben Mankiewicz from Turner Classic Movies. Oh, and, huh. you know, and he's of course related to. Herman Mankiewicz. Man, you did go deep. That's really. Well, I always knew Ben Mankiewicz was related to <laughs> Joseph Mankiewicz and Herman Mankiewicz, but um, yeah, I mean, that's where there's 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 levels of this movie for the real film fan. But I understand what you're saying is you're saying you if you're not a if you're not a film fan and you can't like this movie, that's maybe a problem with the movie. I think it's a little bit of a problem with the movie. I feel like you have to have some knowledge of Citizen Kane going into this. It, it It's probably better if you've seen Citizen Kane before you watch this movie. I, I Maybe. I haven't seen it in years. Yeah, but you've seen it uh, several times. Oh, I've seen it a good six to ten times. Yes. It, exactly my point. You know the film pretty well. And, uh, you know, I in college, I had a, a final exam. Oh, on yeah. You the, don't get out of film school if, it, without seeing Citizen Kane at least twice. I'm not going to. I had a final exam on the on the scene when he's 
when he's a kid and he's outside playing and the camera pulls back into the house and his mom is making the arrangements. I love that whole scene, by the way. It's an incredible scene. And he's in the background shouting the union forever as his family is splitting up. First of all, talk about the genius of that is that we just go from the scene, like, you know, with the beginning where he drops the snow globe. Yeah. Of course, the ending is, you know, iconic, but then we get the scene it, that's like it's like the teaser he's looking yes. at that snow globe and he's thinking back the memory he's thinking about is his childhood when it all changed and, and it looks like a snow globe like that whole scene looks like a it snow looks globe. like a snow globe and then there's like a shot on the sled a really specific shot it's at so the end great. of the scene on the sled with with it the sled being covered in snow it's so I mean, great so it's things like that where you know and, and who knows you'll never know right but there's some storytelling ideas in the movie that are incredibly visual and i wonder like and, and that's one of them like the snow piling up on the sled and i was thinking did mank come up with that or did orson wells like right. add add that in because a lot of the storytelling is done on a visual level not well that's why I, for me that that's not i don't really that part about whether or not who's the real author of the like it's a yeah. i don't really care but but to me it was just such an amazing it, there's so many amazing ideas in the movie that it, it's clear there's a lot of uh, genius behind it on multiple levels. But I we, think there are people that I think there are people that want the answer. For some reason, that's what they wanted Mank to give them was like, who did just like you said, who came up with that? Like, but that's not what this movie was ever going to give. Well, no. And but I did, uh, you know, before seeing it, I did have this expectation that it would be Mank on set with Orson Welles fighting over stuff. Yeah, but writers don't often go on set. Well, I well, I know that, but I'm you know this was just like a you know vague impression I had it, uh, and and I was really glad that didn't happen. I'm not really interested in a movie of who came up with which idea. But RKO two eighty one for people who really are like yes. yeah, I want, you want that to see one that. goes way into that, like the you know the battles he had with the studio or yeah. like or the the Hearst papers and Mank is a side character, but I think he's always holed up in a hotel room in in RKO two eighty one. I think uh, these days it's more common to have writers on set, but it, during the studio era, it was very uncommon to have writers on set. So, of course, yeah, he would be holed up somewhere else, probably. This is the truth that Herman Mankiewicz did do some ghost writing on, and so did a lot of other authors on Wizard of Oz. Yes. I mean, you know, he was just one of many in a writer's room yeah. that came up. What he wrote on Wizard of Oz, I have no idea. No way to know. It's like sort of like in the 70s, all these friends like Brian De Palma. Brian De Palma was good friends with George Lucas, and he's the one who came up with the idea for the scroll. Right. And I think yep. he even helped write the scroll for Star Wars. It's all sorts of collaboration going on. Yeah. I mean, it's like Robert De Niro. He's the one who came up with the improvised lines, you talking to me? But he didn't write the screenplay for Taxi Driver. Well, exactly. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting looking at Mankiewicz's uh, filmography. He did quite a lot of stuff after Citizen Kane, but a lot of it is uncredited. Right. Well, that's what I was saying. After Citizen Kane, like his was his last sort of credited uh, film and he didn't have any. And that's why I think the movie, in reality, he was always contracted by RKO to be the screenwriter. And yes. that was, so there was not really a fight over his uh, credit. He probably, there was a tussle where Orson Welles wanted to be co-writer on it. And how much did Welles actually write? We don't know. That's like the one scene with Orson Welles in this movie, really. 
is when Mank asks him for credit at the end of the movie. Mank? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, look, that's the thing is, it's funny. You don't have to really care whether Gary Oldman is the same age or looks like Herman Mankiewicz, but when you get somebody so iconic as Orson Welles, even though he's not a major part of the movie, that guy has to deliver. He has to look like Orson Welles. Yes, and he does. I, I thought it was a good Orson Welles. Yeah, uh, it, it, yeah. Anyhow, it's a good movie. I recommend it to film geeks. We've talked about Mank for almost an hour. So like it or hate <laughs> it, it was worthy of discussion for an entire Oh, it absolutely episode. is. So, yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. again, I think that there's a lot. It's a weird movie because, again, as your typical film, there may be some flaws. But as a sort of yeah. a piece of film about movies and the movie process and technique and things that just don't yeah. happen anymore as far as the way they make movies, I found it very fascinating. And it just shows me that you can do it. You can actually make a film sort of feel like an old timey movie. Yep. Be a good double feature with uh, Ed Wood. And you know what's funny is I read a I read a comment a critique somebody I don't know whether they really have any cinematography uh, right. credit but they like they put up screen captures okay which you don't know uh -huh. about TV and they put it up between Ed Wood and a scene from Mank which is uh -huh. totally apples and oranges and then yeah. com and complained about the cinematography and like I don't know darkness and certain things and how well Ed Wood is the way a film should look and I'm like oh man. Let me get into this. I, I didn't, no, but no, I'm like, no. I'm like Ed Wood was a certain, it was shot to look like a certain yeah. period and a certain style. And it was shot on film yeah. and projected on film. And it was a different, it was like, you know, almost 30 years ago now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole different era. And so you can't compare those. And Mank was stylized and the choices for the lighting was very purposeful. Yeah. And it wasn't supposed to look like Ed Wood's lighting. Yeah. The only thing that bothered me in Mank was every now and then I felt like this looks kind of digital. Now here's the thing. We have two different setups. Yeah. You did you you must have watched this on your projector? Yes. And I watched it on my OLED TV, yeah. which really focuses on the richnesses yes. of the you know the dark blacks and yeah. it, so it's a pristine image but it's also I don't have a huge screen. Yeah. Whereas you saw it really blown up on a project. So I don't know. You may have seen things that look differently on your setup versus me. Okay. That's probably true. I mean, part of it is just, I can tell the difference between video and film. Well, I can too. And believe me, I was watching <laughs> it, but I, but here's the thing is that I will always say as much as I prefer film yeah. that when digital is done right, it can offer you some great things. And I felt like this offered me in different ways. It offered me what film couldn't offer me. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah. And uh, no, I mean, 95% of the time I loved the cinematography. There were just a few scenes where I was like, eh, maybe a little too much film grain added in. Well, or uh, well they did. They desaturated a lot because, yeah. you know, because video is so sharp. And right. what would be cool is if someday, maybe when the pandemic's over, if they were able to, to prep, prep a version to be put on film stock and projected, yes. what would that look like? I don't know, but I would love to see it. I would love to see it too. Yeah. I will watch this movie again uh, at some point. I got a lot that we got to get too. going through, but I mean, it just, it's a film that it, it has stuck with me a bit. Yep. Me too. Uh, mostly image wise and things and just getting my arms around it. So it's a weird one. And again, if we were in a normal year where we had tons of movies to weigh, I might figure out where did I put this film yeah. in a top 10. And I don't know. 
it, right now it may just end up in my top 10 because there just aren't that many movies. Yeah. I mean, I really, like I said, movies that I'll remember from this year are things like, uh, I'm thinking of ending things. Yes. Uh, and also, uh, like, uh, the, uh, Colorado space. Colorado space. <laughs> yeah. Like things yep. like that. I remember, but I mean, I don't know. Again, I don't have enough movies this year to say. There, top that's, 10. There's just not enough movies. Oh, before we go, we're about to go, right? I mean, we're going. Yeah. I know. I, I could call, I talk to you forever, but one last thing on this movie. No. Oh, okay. This is just our, our final note. A shout out of Noel again. That's got all the, uh, that's going to give you the feels. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm bringing up something that you asked me to prep for today's show. Oh, okay. Tom Cruise. I didn't say, I said you should just hear it before that, because now it's breaking wide. Um, yeah. And of course, everybody's on, everybody has varying opinions about that too, by the way. I don't. What do you think? I think that uh, what he did was uh, right and totally acceptable, and he should be commended. Because they, they're out to get Tom Cruise, and you know, and I'd love to get Tom Cruise too, but I think that sometimes he's right. But what people, there's, a, there's an image that they were marrying up with it. And I don't know how yeah. recent it is. And he's wearing this mask and it's one of those double side valve masks, uh -huh. which many know now they don't offer the protection for people around you. Right. So they feel like he's being a bit hypocritical. Um, but we don't know what the circumstances exactly were. And that was maybe a time where he didn't realize or yeah. what I don't know is, so I wear a mask uh, because my wife's in healthcare and she knows yeah. about something that the healthcare people do where if you see it, it may look like one of those, but it's not the same valve. The, but it has those filter circles on it. Yeah. yeah. The filter that's in this is actually an N95 built in right. so that the air you breathe out gets filtered through an N95. Exactly. And then there's these replaceable filters, which is the N95 in. So either way you slice it. You're right. So you're we don't know about his mask. Right. But people, obviously, people are ready to tear and pounce because that's what the Internet's about. On on the whole, I am with Tom Cruise on this one. Yeah, me too. And it, and it was, but it was also amusing just to listen to it. Oh, it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was hilarious. But I just feel like, yeah, I get it, dude. I, 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 I would have snapped too. Okay. We should get out of here before we go down any more rabbit holes. We, yeah, we can't. I'm going to have to cut some stuff. I'm not making this a two-parter unless we're not going to get on the horny one. All right, people. Uh, Stuffweseen.com. Feedback at stuffweseen.com. And Instagram. All those places. We appreciate your support. Certainly send your feedback and tell us what, you know, what we should talk about. Just like this, uh, this fellow did with Joseph Lossie, which, which I don't have your name written down right here in front of me because I wasn't prepared for Joseph Lossie, but we're going to talk about him maybe even the next episode. So maybe yeah. we will shout you out as soon as uh, we do talk about him in full. Awesome. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye people. Bye-bye.